influencers. Let's get booze. Listen to A. Thompson for an hour. I'd rather fuck a blood relative. It's A. Thompson. doing something it's saying excellent connection just like you and me Yulia um Yay. <laughs> and we are live uh uncharacteristically on a Saturday night people um ladies and gents welcome to Aid Thompson <laughs> and other disappointments uh episode 161 in fact uh your twice weekly oh. dance through the fields of doom lolsery a gallivant through gallows humor central uh, if it's your first time joining i'm your host aid thompson and uh, this show attempts to find the funny in this goddamn dystopian timeline in which we find ourselves um joining me tonight i'm super excited to have her on um those of you who tune in regularly to this show will know that i'm an insatiable unfixable public toilet news junkie um, and though most of the time that manifests as me ripping and roasting whatever's happening out there, like usually within the parameters of UK politics, I am also concurrently very interested in the geopolitical landscape. So your Trumps, your Putins, uh, what's happening in the EU. Um, but a lot of this stuff, I've formed my opinions based on domestic journalism, which we all know can sometimes be somewhat biased. Um, and we're also at the mercy of whether domestic journalism itself is spreading misinformation that it has inherited from the global sphere. Um, and that's assuming that we haven't eaten up misinformation ourselves directly from Twitter or, or Facebook in some capacity. So anyway, tonight, I am super psyched to have her on. Um, she's someone who categorizes herself as a misinformation warrior. Um, she's a journalist. She's on the show. Please welcome Yulia. Woo! <laughs> Hi, I'm the other disappointment on the podcast today. Well, for one <laughs> night only, Julia. you are a disappointment. <laughs> one night only. Um, how <laughs> are you doing, Yulia? You don't know. I, uh, I'm doing very well. I, um, yeah, I'm super psyched to be on here and talk, uh, you know, the, the disappointments in geopolitics. Let's do this. <laughs> Since there are many. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a wild time at the moment, right? Um, business is good for you, I guess, being a journalist of these, uh, 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 within this arena. Um I guess people wouldn't necessarily like I get listeners from different, uh, I guess, facets of my my life and, and stuff. So some people know me from the comedy world. Some people know me from being uh, snarky on Twitter. Um, and then others have just sort of found the podcast by happenstance. Um, perhaps it would be good to get a bit of background, like because you, you worked in product design and like tech or something before you got into this. Could you yeah. talk us through how you've landed in, in geopolitical journalism? Oh, man. <laughs> it was a wild ride, to be honest. It was a very unexpected ride. Um, so yeah, up until February 24th last year, I was uh, making some waves in the tech world in New York City. Uh, I'm a product designer. I just actually, right before the, the invasion happened, I landed a job that I really wanted and that I was really psyched about. And I quit it in March after four months working there Wow! Uh, to do this. Because what ended up happening is I've been living in New York City for the past 11 years. My family lives in Ukraine. Uh, everybody, like my immediate family, I don't mean like some auntie that I haven't spoken to in 10 years lives in Ukraine. Like, no, my yeah, mom, yeah. my dad, absolutely everybody lives in Ukraine. And I haven't been able to visit home for the past seven years due to some immigration 
situation because American immigration is awesome and I don't recommend. Wow. <laughs> and um, and Trump got elected. Anyways, I'm not going to go on my ADHD tangents, but yes. So my family lives in Ukraine. I was feeling immense guilt for the fact that I can't go there and volunteer on the ground. And I happen to be um, an ADHD person who has like little uh, compartmentalized hobbies. And one of my hobbies is research, which is what I actually did in product design as well. And that's, I have a degree in psychology and that's how I combined all of it. So from the beginning of my uh, conscious existence. I really loved history and I'm very, very big in politics, partially because I'm an immigrant in America and it helps to know all of your ins and outs and laws and stuff like that. And so I was very interested in all of the geopolitical kind of like discourse that's been happening in the past, I don't know, 15 years. And I also speak six languages. So it helps being very apt in, um, the political world. So jump to February 24th, I get a phone call at midnight or 1am or something from my dad. And he is panicked. I mean, panicked. And my dad is your typical Eastern European man who doesn't really show his emotions to his little princess girl because, you know, protect me at all costs. Uh, and he was absolutely like out of, uh, uh, he was losing it. He was like, I don't know what's, what I'm going to do. You know, the war has started. I've heard explosions. It's I, I listen, I'm calling you. I'm running against time. I'm going to go figure out if I leave or if I, w what I should do, but right. I just want you to know I'm alive. So, uh, I, you know, be being, what do you do in that situation? Right? Like you, yeah. it's two in the morning and your dad calls you and he's panicking and he's freaking out and it's the person that you know to not have emotions so you know shit is going down you know so I kind of I started going on social media and I started researching things and then I saw a lot of news articles and they were all just so kind of twisted in their idea of what is happening in Ukraine they all seem to not even know that this is not like Putin gone rogue and crazy and attacked Ukraine this has been happening since 2014 then I got just like bombarded by messages from my American friends and they were all like, oh, so can this be sold you like with, um, can this be sold diplomatically? Can this be sold this way? Can this be sold that way? And I realized that the Western world has zero clue of what's happening. And I happen to have like a superpower that I've discovered where I'm very relatable to English speakers, I'm palatable because I sound American, you know, and I also am very, very uh, Ukrainian. So I'm kind of like in between these two worlds where that used to be my detriment before because I felt like I don't quite belong here and I don't quite belong here. And now I feel like it's actually a very good thing because I can understand what my people want to get out there and what your people <laughs> yeah. are lacking in the information space. And so I uh, was talking to my friend. She was like, record a TikTok, put it yeah. out there and like answer these questions. And I was like, uh, I mean, I'm 27. It, like what TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, I did record a TikTok. I put it out there and then I forgot about it for two days while I was just anxiously scrolling news sources. And then I came back and it was at 400,000 views and people were asking all of these questions. And I was looking and there was no one who was explaining this situation in English who was Ukrainian. There were people who were showing what was happening on the ground, but that's, that's you know, seeing what's happening and understanding what's happening were 
two very different things. So I basically started this like educational TikTok channel and I started explaining to people specifics of geopolitics and history and everything. I've done like talks with my history professor. I consulted her on certain things because I wanted to make sure that, you know, I'm not just like you know, in over my head being like, oh, I know this very well, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, it turns out I, uh, I do. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's what I've been doing. And I started reporting in certain situations. I've started working with United 24. I uh, am now in the process of working with Malcontent News, who has been doing the Russia-Ukraine war podcast, uh, which is like right under telegraph over there on the um on the new spectrum of ukraine but it's more of like it's more tactical rather than political unlike the telegraph so yeah that's how i've that's how i've yeah that's yeah it's quite a journey i mean so like i'm just going to go back for a second because i'm really interested to hear so you would you you had this sort of dream job lined up what was there something that happened like that day or was it was that the day of the invasion or like what was it that made you go right fuck no so so originally you know i wasn't really taking um you know social media sort of seriously because i was just like well what can i do you know i'm just going to explain it to a couple of people and that's just what it's going to be i started doing lives every evening because i would wait for my dad to wake up and for me that would be like 1 a.m or 2 a.m and i couldn't sleep i would have like panic attacks unless he would like text me hey i'm up you know and they're in lviv so they're in a sort of like less um they're in a relatively safe environment but at that point there were talks about invasion from belarus and stuff like that and so i started doing these like lives where i would read the news out loud and translating them in english from ukrainian sources Mm. and that's how i would wait for my dad to get up and people started coming in and people started asking tons of questions and i started making tons of videos and at some point i realized that my job that I'm doing is uh, taking up like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And then in between that, I'm recording and editing TikToks and like other, you know, and being yeah, on Twitter yeah. and reading the news. And I I have two full-time jobs. I don't sleep. I lost like so much weight that it, people were commenting and they were like, hey, are you eating? I would forget to eat. And like people that watched me daily mm. would be like, hi, did you have breakfast today? And I would be like, oh, it's 6 p.m. No, I did not. (laughs) And so it was just incredibly hard to do. And I looked at my account. I was like, I have some savings. I can quit my job and I can do this full time for a while until I figure out what I want to do with it or whether I want to do something with it. And I kind of found myself in journalism. I really like it. And I realized that I do love product design. Mm. But at the end of the day, I love research and research is what drove me to product design to begin with. So that's how we ended up here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you, you enjoy this and you enjoy that, but actually the foundation of it is finding shit out, like actually figuring yeah. it out. Yeah. So, so um, something else I wanted to touch on also um, you tapped into there. So when you were first um, encountered with the news as it was around that time, uh, and you were like, well, hang on a second, this this doesn't seem right, or these guys don't seem to have got this bit fully accurate. Like, where do you think that inaccuracy comes from? Because there's, there's this sort of sense that Western media spins a narrative that is very friendly to Western politics, um, and then there's this other side of things that's like, well, is it, like, is it just incompetence? Do they just not really know it? Because America is quite famously like insular. There's that statistic about how few Americans actually even own a passport because so few of them go anywhere else in the world. Like, is it, 
Like, which is it, A or B, or is it a mixture of both? Uh, well, honestly, I think that, first of all, Ukraine wasn't really like an incredibly popular country beforehand. Like no one really heard of Ukraine or no mm. one really heard, not, not not that no one heard of Ukraine, no one heard much about Ukraine. And also there is this, um, I think that a lot of the informational space was influenced by Russia. Like we in Ukraine like to say that Russians were talking instead of us, over us and um, ahead of us and made the opinion of the world about us for the entirety of our existence. And so when the misinformation started building up, it was A, due to the lack of Ukrainian voices in the media sphere, and B, because there were also uh, Russian bot farms that were influencing not only you know the sphere of how people view Ukraine or how people view the situation in Ukraine, but also you know in other countries. And in general, Russia spends so much money on misinformation machines and campaigns worldwide politically that part of the reason why. Do you think that's still an issue? Do you think that's like, because there's this big thing about, you know, Elon Musk has taken over Twitter and he wanted to get rid of the bots. And at one point he was like, yeah, there's going to be a full on like cull, a slaying of bots. I don't know if I've noticed the, like, maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm the outlier, but I don't know if I've noticed a massive increase in the quality of the discourse on Twitter as a result of any of that. Do you think it's changed? Um, No, I mean, do you mean that you haven't noticed many trolls on Twitter? No, I mean, like, I haven't noticed it. Um, sorry, you've got a li- little bit of background noise there, Yulia. But um, I, I just mean uh, I haven't noticed things improve at all, like over the last sort of year or so since Musk said that he was going to get rid of all the all the bots, which is famously oh, gosh. I mean... a, a Russian thing, right? Yeah, Elon Musk buying Twitter was never going to improve anything. I personally thought that once Elon Musk buys Twitter, it's only going to get worse because if you look at the trajectory of how Elon Musk handled his own image and how he manipulated Twitter and how he used it to sort of gain, um, to sort of monetarily gain through manipulating the stock market and stuff like that. And also, if you look at the fact that he's very far right leaning, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting any improvements. I was expecting it to, you know, go down in flames like burning 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 down in flames and that's exactly what it looks like to be honest in the information space about ukraine it seems like things not only have not improved they only have gotten worse Mm. the moderation of content is not really there a lot of um a lot of ukrainian topics and a lot of ukrainian voices get suppressed a lot of people get blocked simply for like calling elon musk out on the things that he does like you know just randomly disconnecting his um starlink from drone use in ukraine which is one of the only reasons we use starlink you know it's one of the biggest things that we rely on so yeah i think when it comes to information space on twitter and elon musk he's only made it worse mm. he also fired half of his staff so <laughs> yeah there's I- not I have to say, like, I mean, if if we're talking sort of very broadly and very briefly about the quality of Twitter since he's taken over, like, I, I mean, I'm a bit of a, a sucker for a good thread. And I wrote one, it was about 20, 20 tweets long earlier today, and it was fucking riddled with, like, but every time I tried to add another tweet to the thread, it would be like, oh, like, something's gone wrong, but don't worry, it's not your fault. Click refresh. I'm like, I know it's not my fault, motherfucker. And like, where's where's my tweet gone? Like, disappeared i'm like great (laughs) like start that anyway enough of my ranting about twitter um one of the the things i was really keen to get your 
your steer on tonight was the actual like what is the status quo with the conflict at the moment with the war because i mentioned in the intro like we're all susceptible to domestic journalistic bias um we have the bbc over here and sky news and obviously to some extent i'm not suggesting that they're going to be you know hugely biased or um or hugely problematic i think they probably do as good a job as they can within the parameters that they're set but there is this feeling that we are being mollycoddled to some extent with the information that we're given and i'll give you a couple of examples Um... before i i throw the mic over to you as it were so we're constantly told that Putin is, he, he's ill. He doesn't look very well. Uh, there's a coup that's about to be launched, um, that he's, he's reviewing his options because things have gone so bad, that his troops have turned around the other way, that they were chased out of this uh, part of Ukraine. And, and so it builds up this feeling that everything's about to actually tip over and that we don't really have too much to worry about. But... The caveat to all of that is that it never seems to fucking happen. Like, he doesn't die. He doesn't fall ill. Nobody overthrows him. The war is still ongoing. Uh, what is your sense of where we're actually at now, really? See, it's funny because these are three such loaded questions, or rather the examples that you've provided can generate so many different, it likes such lengthy answers. So I'll Sorry, try my it's best. it's a really, really convoluted not- question. But yeah, do your best. I'm also a very descriptive person, so I'm doing my, I'm going to try to do my best to not take seven hours of your time. But um, let's start with the Putin is sick, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Putin is sick. Um, Putin, there is this terrible image that has been drawn. uh, Well, first off, I'd like to preface it by saying that the UK actually has a pretty good informational space when it comes to Ukraine, because both the people and the government seem to care uh, equally enough, or the government cares because the people care, right? So at least there is like a load of support for Ukraine in the UK. So I would say that I don't see as many like problematic narratives as I see in the United States or say in Germany or in places that are more heavily populated by the Russians, right? But there is this really problematic narrative that I personally despise so much. And that's the one man's war, right? If Putin dies, it's not Putin who sits there in in his chair and, you know, kills Ukrainians. It's not Putin who drops bombs. It's not Putin who, uh, like, assays people. It's not Putin who believes, it's not only Putin who believes that Ukrainians are Nazis or calls us slurs or, you know, uh, or uh, wanted to start this war. Putin is a product of Russia. Russia is not a product of Putin. If you look at Russian history, they've always had a Tsar who's always been taking and taking and taking lands. Like this is not new for Russia, right? This has been happening. They took Moldova, they took Chechnya, they took, uh, well, Transnistria and Moldova. They invaded Georgia. Before that, if you look at the map of the Russian, of the Soviet Union, it was expanding. If you look at the map of the Russian empire, it was expanding. So there's always been this situation, right? Mm. And so if Putin dies, first of all, I think the whole ill thing these are just rumors i don't pay attention to them i think it's stupid like no one really knows and even if he was ill we wouldn't know if he wasn't ill we also wouldn't know because again russian russian information space is so um saturated with uh, with people who do the tasks to uh confuse you and to tell you wrong information that you never know but also at the end of the day if putin dies right the apparatus behind putin 
is still there. One man cannot do all of these things if the rest of the government and the rest of the people and the rest of the lackeys around him don't want to do these things. Because if, if realistically, if most of Russian oligarchs, if most of Russian politicians, if most of Putin's like circle of elites, right, were against this, it would have ended. Because what what is his what is his power based on? It's based on the people who back him, right? Mm. Again, it's it's kind of you know it's childish to think that this one guy is just a mastermind behind everything. It's like there is an idea, mm. like the same as you know people like to compare it to Hitler, right? And I do too, but in a little bit of a different scenario. When the people who followed Hitler, the people who believed in his ideas, they believed those ideas themselves. Mm. If Hitler were to die, but Germany wasn't defeated, mm. the people would continue going with these ideas and would continue fulfilling them because they genuinely believed in them. The same in Russia. It's like, it doesn't really matter if the Tsar dies. The Tsar has 83% of domestic support. The Tsar has the support of the oligarchs. The Tsar has the support of the government. There's yeah. going to be a new Tsar. So it's a sort of like your take would be that it's it's structural it's cultural like it's going to take decades maybe generations to smash that to to convince russia that there is a different way look um so it took generations for germans right and uh germans are ashamed of their past mm. like they're ashamed of hitler they're ashamed of what happened right with russia this has been going on for 500 years or more it's been generational. Um, it's been this generational idea of Russia being superior. There are poems from 1500s where Russian writers write that Russia is this separate entity. It's this entity of God and Russians are these chosen people. And they have lived in this environment in the Russian empire where if you were Russian, you were superior to all of the other nations in the Russian empire. In the Soviet Union, when you, it, you want everybody needed to want to be Russian. Mm. People had their nationalities written in their passports so you could discriminate against them. But isn't right? that, like, I'm, I'm not trying to sort of, you know, push back here, mm -hmm. but it, like, there's a parallel there to the United States, isn't there? I mean, I, f I feel like with Britain, maybe we're something of an outlier because so many of us are so, like, self-deprecating and like, yeah, all right, we're shit. Mm. There's, there's a sort of culture, that's our culture, is sort of you know, thinking down or like we could never do that here or, you know, we're too shit or, but with America, it feels like maybe it's from an outsider's perspective and, and the image of America that we're given, but it feels like there is absolutely that, but within the United States, like lots of flag waving, lots of we're the leaders of the free, free world. We've got the dominant global currency. Uh, if you want freedom, you move to the United States with the best country, with the greatest democracy ever. Like, there is a parallel there, right? Yeah, there is. And honestly, like some being someone from Ukraine, having moved to the United States from Ukraine, having chosen to stay here at some point, um, I it terrifies me because there is uh, absolutely a parallel. The entirety of like Make America Great Again right. uh, is tailored to white Christian men. And white Christian men in America are trying to become what Russians have been made generationally into in Russia. And that's a very, very dangerous thing, because at this point, these white Christian men don't want 
anything to have rights that isn't a white Christian man. Yeah, and yeah. that's kind of like, you know, that's that's sort of what it was in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. If you were Russian, you had all the rights, you had all the privileges, you were on top of the world and everybody who wasn't Russian wanted to pass mm. for being a Russian. Mm. Why do you why? So just going back to something that you said a second ago, mm -hmm. um, this narrative that gets spun about, you know, one man's war and uh, he's gone crazy. He's a madman. My sense on it was always that this was about natural resources, that Ukraine is a sort of sweetie shop of various natural resources, uh, that this is not necessarily about rebuilding the soviet union although maybe that's a nice little side effect but now like from what you've just said about the the history and the culture of it i'm wondering if if maybe that plays a bigger role than i had previously factored in but to it's what extent both. do you sorry i was just going to say yeah what, what do you think this is really about so it's both um here's the thing if you go deep in history and I like absolutely see uh, I've been talking about this for a year straight. Right. And I really um, I really despise it when people dismiss the historical element because they're like, oh, my gosh, you're talking about something that happened 500 years ago. But it's like it didn't happen 500 years ago. And then for 500 years, everything was smooth sailing until now. Sorry, New York City. Sure. <laughs> Thank God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have at least that. at least people know when they listen and watch this. They will know that this is not misinformation because nobody would stage an interview that is this like hacky and hammy. Uh, I know. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> but, and that's um, not that's not a reflection of you. That's me and my Skype. Oh no, uh, it absolutely and, is. It's yeah. fine. But I'm just I'm also for somebody who worked in tech and actually had a pretty you know had a pretty far in career in tech. I'm terrible with tech things yeah. <laughs> that are not spe my specific niche. But yeah, but um um. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So I really, I really despise it when people say, oh, you're, you know, you're concentrating on something that happened 500 years ago, but it's not like it happened 500 years ago. And then it was just different. And then now we're bringing it up out of nowhere. No, no, no. It was a continuous thing for 500 years. Mm -hmm. If you're a Ukrainian person and you look at your family tree, somebody in your family tree was uh, killed for speaking Ukrainian in every generation. Someone in your family tree was sent into a gulag. I will give you an example from my personal family tree. I thought my grandparents came from Russia because they did move to Ukraine in 40s and 50s, respectfully, when both of them were at about three, four years old, right? And we at, at quite literally thought they were Russian because their families never told them anything about their family tree. We did a DNA test and it turns out my grandmother is a Chernivtsi Jew with some Balkan ancestry and her maiden name basically is this typical standard uh, standard last name that was given to Ukrainians who were into Siberian gulags. So wow. my grandmother was born in Siberia. So it makes complete sense that, you know, her family would just be like, oh, yeah, we're Russian. That's the easiest way that you can. That's the easiest thing that you can say. And that's what you should say. So you avoid problems in the future. My grandfather, turns out, is uh, Baltic and has nothing to do with Russia. And his family, when he was growing up, was incredibly dirt poor. His mom never really talked about what happened. But once we started digging and digging, we found out that they have moved from the Baltics and they were rich people. And the Soviet Union took all of their money and all of their everything. And basically, she was made into like a maid. And she wasn't Russian. And the reason why everybody was taught to just you're Russian, you're Russian is because it was the easier way and it was the way you couldn't identify with what you were. Mm. So 
backtrack to Ukraine, you know, uh, people don't don't realize this one simple thing. People understand uh, people understand why um, why Jewish people have such a big um, why uh, the Holocaust is something that we mourn every year, why it's something that we talk about so it never happens again, right? But it happened before that. Mm. The Holocaust in Ukraine was Holodomor, and it was a an artificial famine uh, that killed 4.5 million Ukrainians in one year at the very least, and that's, only, that's the official statistic for deaths from hunger. Mm. So we're not talking... Sell, uh, we're not talking like self-harm. We're not talking people who are shot for looking for food. We're not talking for underlying diseases that come from hunger. We're not talking about any of those things, right? We're simply talking about 4.5 million people in a year, specifically from hunger. And Russia and the Soviet Union was like, oh, well, the crop conditions were bad. No, there was Red Army standing there and taking away people's foods. I have family in my family tree that died from from that. I have family in my family tree that had died from Yekaterina II, who was killing Cossacks. I have, you know, in every single generation, there is an elimination of Ukrainians simply for being Ukrainian. And so when we do jump back 500 years, Russia was named Muscovy. It was the kingdom of Muscovy, and it had nothing to do with Kyiv Rus, which was a huge empire right next door that was was like at the cross of civil, cross, crossroads of civilization that was doing really well, that had all of these noblemen, that had all of these rulers who were married into like French royal families and Spanish royal families and other royal families, and there were interpersonal relationships. So when the so when the rulers of Moscovy wanted to be an empire, they were like, okay, well, no one's going to marry into our family because we came out of nowhere. They started looking into that was Peter the first to begin with. Uh, they started looking into the history and they realized that the entirety of their kingdom is built on Ugrophinic tribes that haven't had yet the time to develop. And of course, that doesn't make for a trustworthy empire because you have nothing to show for yourself. You would have to actually work for it. So instead of that, they started burning archives and they started they started um, basically merging and whitewashing. The history to make it seem like Muscovia is the descendant of Kyiv Rus. They renamed it to Russia mm. and uh, Peter the first renamed it to Russia, but it was Muscovia, not Russia, because Russia, Rus, you know, is that that's where, what happened. And so is that where Moscow comes from? Moscovia? Mos is uh, well, Moscow, uh, so the original name of the city of Moscow was Moscow. In Russian, it's Moskva. They renamed it later. Moskov means uh, mud water or like swamp. Oh, wow. And Moscovia was the swampdom of that swamp, right? And obviously, this is not a very great name to sort of roll with when you're trying to build an empire <laughs> and your neighbor is the great empire. So they base, they whitewashed history. And the problem with whitewashing history is that you have to get rid of the people who know yeah. the actual history. And so because of that point, the Kyivan Rus had, you know, disintegrated and Ukrainians were being invaded from here, from there, from other places. We sort of needed, right? Like we needed help. And they took advantage of that. And they started killing us off. They started creating numerous genocides. They started putting their own people onto our lands. They started invading invading uh, other nations. If you look at the original kingdom of Muscovy, it's like this big. Yeah. And then within like a 10 to 20 year span, it becomes 
what we know today as modern Russia, well, plus some territories that Russia has lost. So realistically, the whole problem with this entire invasion is that that the Russian empire never ceased to exist, never collapsed. It got renamed into the Soviet Union and lost some territory and gained some. And then the Soviet Union got renamed into the Russian Federation and lost and gained some territory. But the scheme was always the same. It was expansion, imperialism, superiority over people, uh, the erasure of the cultures that live in there in favor of the Russian culture, lots of incredibly like narcissistic, racist laws, and a Tsar. Because in Russia, people don't elect a government. The government is their country. Like yeah. they're not loyal to their country and to themselves. They're loyal to their government. Yeah, which was the fear of when Donald Trump was president in the United States, was that you were starting to see that blurring of whoever happens to be the inhabitant of the White House, whichever political party was in power at that moment, uh, they were attempting to wrap the national identity around that tenure, right? So if you're against Donald Trump, you're not a patriot. Exactly. And it's like you can't criticize, you know, like the great democracy who can't criticize anything the leader says, because if you criticize anything the leader says, you're somehow bad. Mm. But isn't that the pillar of democracy where you want your leaders to do better consistently? Well, but that's um, but that's. Yeah. But I, so sorry, you go, you go. So to that, I wanted to say this is where my like graphic design background comes in handy, right? If you analyze um, the election campaigns of like Hitler and you analyze the election campaigns of Donald Trump from a design standpoint, the marketing was the same and make America great again is the same swastika and the entirety of like the attire and popularizing all of these like, you know, things that that identify you as the member of Make America Great Again is the same strategy as identifying yourself as a Nazi soldier because you people know that you belong to this. People know that you are a part of something bigger. Right. And the people who join it want to be a part of something bigger. That's how like that's how fascist uh, propaganda works. It it always amazed me or amazed or amused. I'm not sure. One of the two like when. So we have similar issues here. Uh, firstly, on the criticism of the government being misconstrued, willfully misinterpreted, in fact, as somehow unpatriotic. Like there's a quite a famous interview with a uh, a then minister, I think she was, um, Andrea Ledsom, her name was, and somebody was scrutinising her um, her plans for the economy or the government's plan for the economy, and the the attempt at scrutiny was met with this response from her. She was like, you know, I think I think everyone just needs to be a bit more patriotic. It's like, we're talking about the fucking economy. We're not talking about, like, hating your country or, like, burning a flag. or Like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is ridiculous. Um, so there's that. But there's also this... Uh, the, the thing that amuses me about it is it's the same over here as I imagine or perceive it to be in the US, where it's the small government... Um, slash away at public services types. So over here, it's the Conservative Party. Over your way, it's the Republicans. You slash away these public services that broke people are completely reliant on because, like, it's out of a sort of conservative with a small c desire to, like, just be your own person. I'm responsible for my health care, for my family, and that's it. I don't want to pay any more tax than I absolutely have to because it's just me. It's just me. And yet it's these same people who then go running to this strength in numbers sort of church, almost, (laughs) of make America great again. And over here, I guess it would be Brexit. 
And paying tons of money to the cult of Make America Great Again so they could get elected again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't see a problem with funding Trump's campaigns. They do see a problem with paying for health care, which actually they would pay less for health care than they do now for insurance fraud. I call it insurance fraud. But yeah, this is this is kind of like how it works, right? And it's when we were talking about it's an interesting time to live in is because we are living at the brink of history, right? Like there is every once in a while, every, every like hundred of years or so, there is like a huge historic sort of shift in, in things worldwide. Right. And we are living through it now and everything is chaos, but it's because at some point, every time when these, when big wars happen, when big shifts politically happen, when big, um, when geopolitics changes so much, it's always due to like the rise in fascism, no matter how you want to sugarcoat it, no matter what you call it at the time. Right. But it is like powerful people trying to become more powerful than what they were put there for, because at the end of the day, you know, we talk about like great, great economic powers and great military powers and presidents as powers. Right. But they're supposed to be the people who are there serving their country and serving their people. Like they're not the power. The power is supposed to be the people behind them. Mm. But at some point, these lines get blurred because some of these people uh, see power a little differently. They don't see it as power of change anymore. They see it as personal power. And that's Mm. when things in the world start shifting very, very much because these people are trying to stop working for the people at this point and they start working for themselves and their own interests. Mm. Or at least way more so, because obviously all, all the world leaders always work in their own interest. But we're not, we're not five. We don't believe in fairies. <laughs> it's, it's so, like sometimes it's more obvious than others. Like, so I, I look at a place like Russia where it's so obviously corrupt. Like I, I used to work in a professional services firm and I was interviewing a guy uh, to become a con- consultant at this um, this big, big fucking place in Canary Wharf. Um, and... Uh, and I asked him that sort of question that you always get asked in that kind of thing. Like, I was like, can you give me an example of a time where you had you had to make a really dis- uh, difficult decision um, and how it affected the project that you were working on? And so like boring HR kind of uh, end of the interview questions. And this guy says, yeah, I was doing some work in Russia. Uh, and on one of the last days of the project, we get a phone call. And it's from like the Russian mafia or government offshoot organization or something. And uh, the guy on the other end of the phone says, um, we're cutting off all your power now <laughs> to this building unless you drop a hold all with like 200,000 or 500, like however much money it was in rubles or whatever uh, at this location. And I said, oh, wow, God, that sounds horrendous. Like, and, you know, me and my naive, ignorant 2010 mind, whenever it was. I was like, so what did you do? Like, call the police? or? Uh, and he goes, no, no I, I spoke to my directors and I got the money and then we left it there in a holdall. And I was like, okay. And I fed it back as feedback to my directors saying, I don't think we should fucking hire this guy. Like, what kind of what kind of person, like, leaves cash for a load of gangsters? Like, that's completely against our value. And they were like, no, Russia's different. Like, it's, it's fine. Like, just get him in. And I'm like, all right. Um <laughs> 
But that's like the thing, you know, uh, Russia is obviously corrupt when you're not in Russia. Like when I say, you know, it's one of the reasons why people have such a hard time believing everything that's going on and believing Ukrainians who keep on repeat saying like, no, this is not new. This is not shocking. This has been going on is because of exactly how much money Russia invests into the image of Russia, Mm. both internally and externally. Right. Like People thought Russia has amazing military. It hasn't since the Cold War. It all went down from there. It never had good military under Putin. They thought it was a great economic power. It never was. People were always uh, hungry. People never had toilets. People people never had gas. People never had electricity. They don't have roads. They don't have like basic necessities because, yeah, Putin is a great economic power himself and people next to him, it's a kleptocracy. And it's always been. But in Russia, for instance, when even when you watch American movies, one of the biggest um, things that Ukraine did for itself in like 2008, maybe, uh, we changed to Ukrainian uh, voice uh, voiceovers and dubbing in movies that came from abroad. Because before that, they used to be in Russian. We didn't like have the budget to voice them over in Ukrainian. And when we started doing that, we've realized that actually most of the movies that were that were dubbed over in Russian were dubbed over wrong on purpose. So anytime Putin is mentioned in an unfavorable light, they substituted with Ukrainian Ukraine being mentioned in unfavorable light. Oh, right. Anytime Putin is mentioned in unfavorable light and you can't substitute it with Ukraine, you just take out Putin and you say something completely different. Like, for instance, you know, there was a Mila Kunis movie about like spies or something like that. And she was saying like, oh, it's not one of those fake uh, friendships generated by the Russian KGB, right? And they translated it as like, it's not one of those uh, fake friendships generated by Ukrainians, right? Wow. Yeah. It's like... From where? But then I guess, so like now you're telling me that obviously that that seems a, a very clear example of propagandists in action. But I guess if mm-hmm. you you're not familiar with how these people work you would just see that as yeah that's a film that a director made and somebody wrote that line because that was his perception is Mm -hmm. exactly but that's the entire thing russia changes um your perception of them and they've always done it right like if you look at the Soviet Union, uh, right now, all of the museums are changing uh, Ivazovsky to be a Ukrainian painter. Uh, people, uh, it, all of the museums are changing, um, oh my gosh, why am I, why am I blanking out, uh, Malevich to be a Ukrainian painter, because they were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sikorsky, the helicopter, he was Ukrainian and identified as Ukrainian. If you go on Wikipedia, you will see tons of, um, tons of like, people that were famous for something or did something great, right? And it'll say a Russian um, imperial figure, right? And then you scroll down a little bit and it literally says the last Cossack of the Cossack siege. Mm. He's Ukrainian. He's not just Ukrainian. He's literally the last ruler of the Cossack siege. He's he's a Ukrainian king. How is this a Russian imperial figure of Ukrainian descent? You know what I'm saying? And these things have been done... For centuries. So you would think, oh, Russia has this amazing industry of making helicopters. Sikorsky made it. No, Ukraine has an amazing industry of making helicopters. And Sikorsky was Ukrainian who made it. And Moscow took the accomplishment because if you wouldn't let them, they would kill you. Mm. Yeah. It's like anybody who's ever worked in Moscow, which you had no other choice than doing unless you wanted to die if you were good at something. 
then then that person automatically becomes the Russian accomplishment and the and Russian, but they never were. So Russia always stole bright minds. Russia always appropriated history. Russia always appropriated bright minds, always Russified bright minds, and always made them sound as something they're not. You know, Master and Margarita? Mm. Uh, the book? Bulgakov? Uh, wait, hang on. Like, I'm nodding along now. I don't know the book. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so uh, the book is Master and Margarita is one of the most popular uh, books, uh, Russian books. Bulhakov was born and raised in Ukraine. I mean, he was a Russophile. He was quite crazy. He was a meth addict, but uh, he's not Russian. He's Ukrainian. Yeah. Um, Gogol, he was the ambassador of Ukrainian culture into St. Petersburg, and therefore he was writing in Russian because had he written in Ukrainian, nobody would understand his ambassadorship of Ukrainian culture. Right. He somehow, for up until like two months ago, everywhere was written as a Russian writer, but he's he was an ambassador of Ukrainian culture to the Russian royalty during so the then, Russian Empire. Is it? But then, when when there's something bad, so that sounds like they're sort of taking all of the good things and then uh, remarketing them as Russian things. So, it, but then if something bad happens in Ukraine or a bad accomplishment, someone fucks up, do they then go like, ah, bloody Ukrainians? Yeah, immediately Ukrainian. You know what's funny? I will give you an example of that. There was um. There was this um, a dancer. He's a ballet dancer. He was in Hosier's clip, a music video for Take Me to Church. Okay. Uh, the guy with Putin tattoos, you might have seen him. He has like a Putin here and a Putin here. And uh, he, I forgot what his name is. Honestly, I don't care for him. But basically, he was born in Kherson in Ukraine. But he's never identified as Ukrainian. He was moved to London, actually, to the ballet school when he was like 11. And he was... Um, uh, he was a prodigy of like multiple Russian figures, right? He's never spoken Ukrainian. He doesn't care for Ukraine, always identified as Russian. I think his family moved to Ukraine sometime like in the generation before him. So the only thing he has in common with Ukraine is that he was born there and his mom lived there. That's that's it. Never like culturally not Ukrainian, lived in, lives in Moscow, identifies as Russian, has Putin tattooed on his freaking chest for fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he was the bad boy of ballet. And when he was the bad boy of ballet, he was the Russian bad boy of ballet. And then he went on and revealed his true personality and started talking about very racist, like sexist, homophobic garbage in some interview. And Hosier like denounced him. Everybody denounced him. And he became a Ukrainian ballet dancer. <laughs> it's like immediately it's like, like back in the day when mm -hmm. uh I think is Andy Murray retired now. I don't know, but he's he's a Scottish tennis player, and when he was doing well, you would see it in the newspapers like, oh, he's a British tennis player because Scotland sits within the like Great Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, but when he fucked up, it would be like Scottish tennis Scottish. player. Yeah. Oh, it's the same as like it's the same as comedians these days or actors, right? Like when they're doing well, they're yeah. British actors. When they are doing horribly or they said something wrong in the press or something like that, immediately Irish, Scottish, Welsh, like wherever they're from, but just not British. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um I wonder if but like yeah, whilst, it was very fun. Well whilst I have you, like it's potentially it's gonna be quite a big week geopolitically, although domestically, yeah. for you. Um in so I I don't know how true this is I haven't I haven't fact checked twi Twitter yet but uh, I read something earlier that Donald Trump is expecting to get charged 
on Tuesday, he's going to get arrested and charged for something or other. How accurate is that? And how do you feel about that? So, okay, uh, it is accurate. He there has been multiple investigations against him and he's done a lot of uh, a lot of horrible, horrible crimes. It's just hard to apprehend a former president for them. Right. But they finally landed on what they can arrest him for and they will. But they were trying to do it uh, low key. Obviously, it didn't happen. It leaked to the press. The rumors started. Donald Trump's lawyers came out and said that they have not gotten any confirmation of that yet. Well, because on the official level, it's still not in motion, right? Like they that's why they wanted to do it quiet. Donald Trump found out because rumors and he started tweeting, there is no date on when he's supposed to be arrested. There is no plan on how he's supposed to be arrested that has ever been leaked to the public or anything like that. He is, they are planning on arresting him. Like that is, that is, that is a fact. But the reason why he's saying I'm going to get arrested on Tuesday and why he's doing that is because he's calling for public unrest and he wants to prevent getting arrested. But it's a felony. Citing violence to not get arrested is a felony. So he's only he's only doing himself a disservice by only bringing up more and more charges against himself. Do I think he's going to get arrested on Tuesday? Now, maybe likely. Before that, speculation. He's just saying that because he wants people to get agitated and get rallied mm. up. This but is, yes, he is. A- this is my fear. So we, like, we saw what the results were like with the January the 6th uh, riots. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that people died on that day. Is that I'm like leveraging somewhat and the, like, the reason i'm saying i'm sounding somewhat uncertain about that is i saw a a podcast clip last week where somebody was saying like like who's like whose names were killed like who was who actually died that day like no, that's right you can't name them and i'm like well hang on a second like you know i want to be objective about this if if there is some misinformation out there then i want to be you know like hold my hands up and say oh shit you know i heard some stuff but i'm relatively certain people died that day right i believe there is a trump supporter actually that uh, that died there were people that were hit with bullets there was a police officer that was injured but also it really doesn't matter if someone died on january 6th there was a violent mob armed violent mob that Mm. broke into a government building you know and not just any government building into the parliament of the united states like this is not this, sure. It doesn't, you know, it's a felony any way you look at it. And so this this is my fear is that so by going on uh, Truth Social or Trump Social, whatever the fuck it's called, and saying like in in big capital letters was the screenshot I saw uh, or, or appearing to incite violence, um, that this could well actually get really fucking ugly. Um, do you think it's likely to be that or is it going to be sort of damp squib territory where he's arrested and then, you know, a few fucking lunatics turn up with Dixieland crosses and, and whatever else? Um, well, his support is not nearly as um, as big as it used to be. It's just very vocal. There are lots of Republicans who voted for him in the beginning who are now like, oh, my God, because they weren't voting for this. They were just voting for a Republican president. Right. And then this is they got. So they kind of tore off him. Uh, lots of Republicans in office um, who were on his side are not on his side anymore. A lot of them actually did um, testify against him. And uh, I think they're probably likely to put him on house arrest at first. So they're not that this is what they're trying to avoid. But also this time they're prepared because they know that this man is going to go and like, you know, try to put America through like seven rings of hell in order to like get back into his into his like presidential seat or dictatorship seat and a lot of people are worried that this is going to um 
this is going to help him get reelected? I don't think so. Because again, there are, uh, I think he has a mob of people who still love him and still follow him. And, but I don't think that his support is nearly as like, whoa, as it was in 2016. Mm. Like it's really declining since 2020. That's a relief because it felt like, like, even though I guess the, the thing that gets wheeled out a lot is that whilst Trump was president, there wasn't like a war. There wasn't some global conflict that was dragging That's America. That's not true. Oh, really? Ukraine. Ukraine was at war and Trump was blackmailing Zelensky. Oh, really? Please do like elaborate. That's- that's the funny thing, you know. I know nothing about this stuff, so yeah. All of these Republicans who are always like, "Oh, if Trump was president, the war in Ukraine wouldn't have happened." Like, yeah, Trump would have given Ukraine up to Putin. But also, like, uh, if, when Trump was president, like there was no war in Ukraine. War in Ukraine started in 2014, when Russia came in and violently seized Donetsk and Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea. It was very full on going on in 2016, 17, 18. 1920 people were being tortured uh, filtration camps were being created in Donbass Crimean Tatars were killed off in Crimea like all of this was happening and Trump was when he wanted to get reelected the Hunter Biden laptop situation the whole like he wanted to get um blackmail Biden through Ukraine because Hunter Biden, uh, the son of Joe Biden, was on board of a company in Ukraine, which people are like, ha ha ha, no, like secret biolabs. Like, no, it's just, you know how many rich people are on boards of international companies because they make them more rich? Like yeah. it's normal. It's normal to be on board of a freaking company like in Ukraine. It's, it's not wild. It's not weird. But anyway, so he was trying to blackmail Zelensky with aid. He was withholding aid, uh, blackmailing Zelensky into surrendering some information on Joe Biden or launching an investigation into like Hunter Biden. And Zelensky told him off and said he's not going to do that because that's not that's that's not legal and that's not okay. And that's the first time that he made headlines as a president of a small country next to Russia that stood up to Donald Trump, which is also the first time that I got that I gained incredible respect for him because I didn't vote for him. I voted against everyone. We have that. We have that lovely option in Ukraine. <laughs> I did not like anyone on that list. Was he seen as like wait, before he became a world leader? Before he found himself in this situation, was he taken seriously domestically? Like, how did he get in? Because it's it. There's this sort of feeling in my head that you know, if you were on a TV show and then you went into politics i'm not saying it's impossible but so there is also an image of him that's misconstrued people keep calling him like a comedian or an actor right zelensky owns one of the most successful production companies that was in russia and in ukraine he was he was a millionaire he was a multi-millionaire who was doing really well he was an incredibly successful man like he ran um he created this comedy club he created a niche that didn't exist before. He created the show. He created multiple shows after that. He created the production company. He shot and produced and recorded and starred in multiple movies that were like huge in Russia. Like there was this movie that was an alternative to like Sets in the City, basically. Um, sort of like the, but the Russian version. And it had nothing to do with Sex in the City. It was just like the name was kind of like that. And it, it, and it was his. Like he was in three of those movies and three of them did like fantastically. He's produced so many amazing things. It's not like you know he's been he was an an incredible leader 
a different genre. So when he came into Ukraine, the reason why he got elected is because he was a fresh and different person and he wanted good things for Ukraine. But the thing is also when he got elected in a landslide, people had lots of expectations and they were very big expectations because we finally had a president who wasn't like, uh, you know, a commie scum who wasn't like resulting from, from the Soviet, who wasn't, who wasn't politically raised through the KGB and the Soviet Union because Kuchma was, uh, Kravchuk was, Kuchma was, Kuchma was awful. He almost turned Ukraine into a dictatorship. We just protested enough against and were violent enough that that didn't happen. Mm. Um, Yushchenko was a great guy, fantastic dude, just so useless. Like he was so nice. He wanted such good things for Ukraine, but he had no backbone. And he just, he was president for eight years and we loved him because he wasn't bad. He didn't do anything good, but yeah. he just was like, he didn't, he didn't try to destroy Ukraine. Okay. Yeah. And that was fantastic. It was, it was, it was as good as it was going to get, you know? <laughs> and like, I, always, I always sort of refer to that as like, a, like the metaphor for it is like when, you know, when you've got a, a good friend who gets out mm -hmm. of a really shit relationship and mm -hmm. like the the, pre the bar, the, the the bar. yeah like the ex-boyfriend is like you know lies he cheats he spends all of her rent money he slaps her mum around the face like he's a bad dude and then she gets together with a guy who is just a gambling addict and it's like he's really nice though because he doesn't hit my mum it's well, like well, I'm going to give Yushchen credit. He wasn't he wasn't bad. That's like there was nothing bad ab about him. The thing is, he was genuinely a great guy. He loved Ukraine. He wanted good things for Ukraine. He wanted Euro integration. He was the one who started that process. He was good. He was just super ineffective because, you know, he wasn't a leader. Mm. Like he was, you know, he was a good guy. <laughs> he just yeah. wasn't. Do you know what, though? <laughs> are you are you familiar with like how how? across british domestic politics are you? you i understand british domestic politics pretty okay. well so are you familiar with jeremy corbyn who was the Labour yes. leader okay so he was sort of championed uh as you know this this very idealistic socialist guy who had very rarely been on the wrong side of history uh background in activism um some great policy ideas uh but my take on him, and I'll, I'll probably like erupt the trolls and I'll get attacked by a swarm of, of uh, Corbyn fans now. But my, my take on him was always like, he's just not a leader. He's like, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I'm sure he is. But he's just, I can't imagine him sitting, you know, here we are talking about Ukraine and Russia and Putin. And I can't imagine him sitting across the table from Putin and putting the frighteners on him or like e even elevating up to a level of geopolitical significance where he sat there with a Merkel and a Putin and uh, an Obama back in the, like those days. Like it just, he just didn't strike me as someone who had the gravitas, the charisma and uh, I don't know, but whatever the other noun is that I'm looking for. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's exactly kind of, you know, Yushchenko didn't have command of the room. Like, I feel like any time I watched him, like he had, you know, his language was great. Like his, he was polite. He was like, he, he had all of the like qualities that you want to see in your president representing your country, right? But the one quality he didn't have was the gravitas. As in like, he, 
completely just crimpled in in the room with all of these big guys. And that's not something that you can have when you're a leader of a country that's trying to decolonize itself, yeah. right? Because you have to be pushed. The one thing that Zelensky has, no matter the criticism that he receives, like, first of all, we, uh, we as Ukrainians, we are a very different nation in terms of our leaders. And if we don't like someone, if they cross our boundaries, we revolt. Right. And we revolt. We will die. We will mm. die. But we will get like we will get rid of a person who's hurting our country. We've done that multiple times. We've had so many revolutions in the past, like 30 years, like probably none of you even heard of them. The first one, 1991, Revolution in Granite. Right. And the other one was the revolution against Kushma, the Orange Revolution for Yushchenko because the election was rigged. Then we had Maidan. And now, you know, we are at war, but we do this. And like this is our society. And when our society thinks that someone's not performing to the best of their ability, they start being incredibly critical. And I think what happened to Zelensky is that people had unrealistic expectations of him. Mm. They had different. He was new. He wanted all of these things, right? But he's also new to politics and he's a new leader. We're still at war and there are still all these people that thought that we're Nazis in a civil war, you know? Mm. And there are countries that are against us. There is Russia's influence. There is so much he can do. So like he you know, he, he was getting a lot of backlash before the invasion because also people thought if Russia invaded, he would, he would run and he would surrender it. He would surrender Ukraine. But that's the thing. He didn't. And actually, I see him as, yes, he might not be as politically apt as like other people. He has a good cabinet that is very politically apt. He has amazed people in his cabinet and they're doing a great job. But also, he's the only administration that we've had that managed to have the strength, the charisma and like the willpower to stand up to not just Putin, but to the world to demand things to be right, to mm -hmm. demand just demand to stand for right things. And it's like that alone is worth a lot. Imagine you are a little president of a little country that's being invaded by Russia and you stand on the world stage and you say you're not giving us enough weapons. Yeah. Like this, we're not getting what we need from you. Yeah. In their right mind will have the balls to criticize Biden, to criticize Scholz, to criticize Macron to their face on the world stage. That alone is worth a lot. And so I have immense respect for him for handling the situation the way he did. You know, yeah, he has a lot to learn politically. He's, you know, he's a new leader. He's a new president. It's his first four years in politics. And I feel like he's doing a darn good job for someone who's who's been in politics for four years, you know, at the helm of a country. This culture uh, of, you went back to sort of 1991 and, you know, the, these revolutions and that if Ukrainians are unhappy with somebody running the country in a particular way, then they will let that person or that party know. Um, I'm curious because I always have this feeling with the UK that people are kept largely compliant and dumb uh, as to how crooked and corrupt our government and political parties are. So just a, like super quick examples. So we have these in the pandemic, we had this PPE fast lane, uh, sorry, VIP fast lane, where donors to the political party in power 
were able to circumvent checks and balances, get right in there to the head table and then secure lucrative government contracts because they had the right connections. Meanwhile, the people who might have been best for the job and could supply the actual equipment that might have saved lives are left in the dark. And the output of that, unsurprisingly, was inadequate PPE, um, uh, unsuitable facilities. A lot of the stuff had to get sent back. It cost billions of pounds, most notably this uh, lady and her husband she lobbied she's a baroness she lobbied the government to take uh, to give a contract to her husband <laughs> and it, he made 60 million out of it and split it uh split it 50 percent with her so she made 30 million it's so obviously corrupt um and yet i think people are i mean although that's become a big news story i think when we look back over the last 10 or 20 years people look at the the conservative party or it could have been labor when they were in in power and they look at these parties like yeah well you know they're all the same or you know it would be worse if party x was in and it's all it all for us it comes back to this concentrated ownership of media in the uk so here's my question after that very long prelude yeah. um what is media like in ukraine are people kept compliant because it doesn't sound like it it sounds like they get real news <laughs> Um, yes and no. So a lot of this is this is the thing. The root of all of our issues genuinely has always been Russia. A lot of Russian oligarchs, oligarchs who made their money in Russia owned Ukrainian media mm. and they were spitting sp specific narratives. And this became apparent and very obvious with the Yanukovych election, because you could tell which channels were like pushing for him. Right. And so Ukrainians started creating their own media. And we're also like we are rebelist people. And we've always been rebelist people. That's that comes as a rite of passage when you are literally the country that consistently gets colonized: Austria-Hungarian Empire, Poland, Russia, Russia for 500 years. And we've we always had to resist. We always had to resist a regime that wasn't ours. We've always built our own governments. We've built our own resistance movements. And we've gotten we've gotten our independence multiple times. It's just a new power would come in and quickly dismantle it. Right. So we as people are very much used to uh, taking things at not taking things at face value. We as people uh, are not like, you know, when you go to an office and you see how corruption works, right? Like you see corruption in person, you understand that this is not just some like, you know, sleazy person at the passport table who wants to get like 50 bucks to get your passport. Mm -hmm. This is goes beyond right and so people investigated because at the end of the day all we've ever wanted is to be independent from russia and to be independent from these forces to be independent from the soviet corruption like kind of snowball that's been going on and our corruption has always been very obvious right and it's very obvious to determine it because again it comes from russia and you see that corruption sort of like through the lens of like looking at russia and understanding like hey people have no roads understanding in ukraine like you will be going to a village and it's like oh there are no lights so why are there no lights so people are going to go to their city administration and be like what the fuck mm -hmm. we don't have lights like i went to paris the other like i went to france the other year and i was like there are lights people live with lights so their government has an ability to save enough money to invest into lights like we see politicians have nice houses nice cars we don't live in a third world country people people make money right we have business we have stuff like that so how come can we not fix the road so that's the thing ukrainian civil society is incredibly acting at advocate is incredibly active at advocating for our needs and it's genuinely like it's built into our dna i don't and i don't i mean it like it poetically right 
but it's just in every single generation, we faced hardship of like trying to dismantle the regime. And so we've always been very, very much on top of dismantling a regime. Also, every single person that I know, I've like, I found it so funny. So uh, my husband didn't vote. And, right. Like he didn't care to vote. He's like, I live in New York. It's not going to change anything. Of course, Democrats are going to win. Like what another vote for Democrats matters. And like, you mm. don't do that in Ukraine. What do you mean you don't fucking vote because because, you know, your state is going to be Democratic either way and you want Democrats. So your vote is not going to change. What do you mean you don't fucking yeah, vote? Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't not vote in Ukraine. And I thought that this was maybe like me or my family or something. No, like my friend Kat and her husband, he didn't vote until Kat married him, and now he votes, and he votes every single time. He votes all elections because you got to vote. <laughs> you yeah. have a vote. Why would you like not use it? So, yeah, everybody votes. Like my dad calls me every time there isn't like six months prior to an election, and he's like, "Hey, have you registered at the consulate to go vote?" Because it's you know it's it's a thing. You vote. You vote, and you ex- you exercise your power to because, vote. <laughs> yeah, because there's that sort of still emotional, psychological, and and cultural association with how valuable and precious your say yeah. is in terms of how not just how the country is run, but the fact that you <laughs> you don't want to lose the vote, right? Yeah. Um, also, speaking of, you know, it reminded me. So uh, there is an 18-year-old boy from Ukraine living with me. He came from Ukraine a little while ago, and he just turned 19. And it just dawned on me that he's in the United States, and he needs to go to the consulate and register to vote whenever there is going to be an election. He's making a sandwich for himself currently. So I and he he hears me. So I just figured I would, you know, I would just get his in. attention for a second, yeah, yeah. so he doesn't forget to do that. Fair, fair. Uh, listen, Yulia, this has been great, man. We've been talking for over an hour and a lot of it's been quite deep and quite dark and and, and important. Um, but I'm going to leave you with a couple of quick fire questions, because ultimately this is a podcast that's, you know, it wouldn't be a podcast unless we threw out a couple of quick fires. Right. So here we yeah. go. Are you ready? Ready. OK. <laughs> if you pick up your phone right now. What is the song that is playing on your Spotify? Um, well, funny enough, I was showing someone a Ukrainian song a little while ago, so it would be Kaloshvitskovka uh, Faina. What's your favorite swear word? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Who's, who has the most punchable face? Donald Trump. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good one. Over here, uh, right? actually, no, no, it, it would oh. be a three-headed monster: Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, and Ron DeSantis. Oh, okay. Together, like three, for, <laughs> three for one deal. Fair enough. Um, I was going to say Piers Morgan for me, but fine. Um, who do you get told you look like? Uh oh my gosh! Uh, I think Emma Stone was the the latest one, and I was like, I don't think so, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she's beautiful <laughs> take one episode of your life to donate to a box set collection entitled times i was a massive bellend um episode of my life uh college dating <laughs> <laughs> oh and right last one yes or no just super quickly is there any truth to the trump hotel hookers pissing on the bed story 
I, I, I would not be, I would not be surprised if it was, you know, <laughs> cocaine and white nights. Sometimes, uh, sometimes they go out of, out of hand a little bit. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, I see. I I think there is truth to it. I feel like, but I also I kind of don't want there to be truth to it because I feel like if he, even after all the warnings and the sort of expose and the the brief like about it, I feel like if he went on to become president after that, I'd be so angry <laughs> that they had allowed somebody to be compromised that ends up becoming the president. You know. But in the end of the day, like he's done and said so many things that are so much worse than hookers peeing on the bed, you know, that uh, I feel like Whoa. this is just very much, it's, it's very much in line with, with. So, with yeah. His... But then if it all goes back to the hookers bed pissing thing and he's being blackmailed, if it's like compromat and that explains <laughs> a lot of his conduct as a president, it's like, man, like we could have, <laughs> could have erased all of that shit. But anyway. <laughs> Listen, Yulia, this has been great fun. Thank you so much for coming on tonight. Um, guys that are listening and watching this, um, go and seek Yulia's socials out, please. Uh, she goes under the, the tag at Y-E-W-L-E-E-A. Um, so it's just at Yulia. You can find her on Instagram and TikTok. Um, yeah, and YouTube, YouTube, obviously. Yes, YouTube is a big one. Um, and she does really <laughs> like clear, concise, articulate and eloquent explainers about what's going on with Ukraine. Um, and yeah, go and, go and check her out. Guys, uh, that's it for this one. I will be back on Wednesday with the solo show and next week, obviously, with another Friday uh, guested one. Until next time, take care of yourselves. We outie.